Well, if you haven't done so already, open your Bibles to Micah chapter 5. That is the text that we are looking at this morning, and we're considering this particular text because it is the text that uh, we heard the uh, scribes and the priests point Herod to when the Magi came to visit him. And so in our, our call to worship this morning, we Uh, we heard that familiar story of these wise men coming from the east, coming to Jerusalem. And and remember why they were coming. They were coming because they saw a star that somehow told them that one had been born who was king of the Jews. Now, I have no idea how that worked. I I have no idea how they knew that this star meant that uh, one had been born who was king of the Jews. I had no idea how it led them to Jerusalem, but, but the scriptures tell us clearly that they came from the east because they saw the star, and they came to Jerusalem because it was the capital city of the Jews, and they came to the one who, who was the present king, and they said, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And you'll remember how Herod responded to their visit. We're, we're told that he was greatly troubled in all Jerusalem with them. He, he was troubled because he considered himself to be king of the Jews. And, and no doubt he thought that his own son would follow him on the throne. And therefore he didn't much care for the idea that another had been born who was the rightful king. But however much he disliked the, the, the Magi's message, he nevertheless knew exactly what they were talking about. We read in Matthew chapter 2, verse 4, that when the Magi came to him and they asked him where to find the king of the Jews, he assembled together the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. You see, when Herod heard that one had been born who was king of the Jews, he immediately knew who the Magi were talking about. He, he immediately knew that they were talking about the Christ. That they were talking about the long-promised Messiah. The, the one in whom all God's promises would find their yes and amen. The, the one uh, who would be born of a woman. The one foretold by the prophet Isaiah who would sit on David's throne and establish justice and uphold it for this time forth and forever. When they came to Herod asking where to find the king, Herod knew, whether however much he disliked it, he knew that they were talking about the Christ. And so he knew how to find out where he was to be born. He went to the scribes and to the the priests and he asked them, and it's not like they had to look it up. They knew immediately, yes, we know, for the prophet Micah says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. This is the prophecy that the scribes and the priests pointed Herod to. And and Herod ostensibly wanted to go and find this child so that he could worship him. We'll find out next week that his motives were a little bit more sinister. But this morning I want us to focus on this 
prophecy. And I, I want us to, to hear what this prophecy is really all about in the context of, of Micah's entire message. Now I know that for some, going into the prophets can be a bit intimidating. I, I feel that a little bit myself. I'm actually encouraged to know that Luther himself felt that. Luther once complained that the prophets have a weird way of talking like people who, in, who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged to know that, that Luther found it hard to follow the prophets sometimes. He, he found it hard not only to understand some of the, the strange imagery that they use, but he, but he found it hard just to follow their flow of thought because when you're reading through the prophets, you'll notice that they, they switch from one topic to another. They transition from one speaker to another, often without giving you any indication of what's going on, often without telling you that a transition has even taken place. And so it's easy to get lost, and, and therefore we often feel intimidated by the prophets. It's one of the reasons that we will return again and again to a few favorite prophetic texts that, that we like to return to, especially this time of year or around Easter, but that we will seldom just simply work our way through a book, the way we work our way through Hebrews or the way we work our way through Acts. But I want us to try to do that this morning. Now, we're not going to do it over the course of several weeks. We're going we're to look at the whole book of Malachi, focusing on this particular passage this morning, because we need to hear this passage, and we, we need to hear its hope for us, but to get at that full hope, to, to really understand the, the promise that is being held out to God's people this morning, we need to hear the full story. And so if you haven't already, open your Bibles to the book of Micah. And one of the first things you'll notice about the book of Micah is that it can actually be divided into three parts. And, and Micah himself indicates this for us. All right, so, so if you look at the very beginning, at, at the second verse, the first verse kind of introduces us. This is the word of the Lord that came to Micah. But then his message begins in the second verse of chapter 1. And notice how it begins. He says, Hear, you people, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. And so he, he begins by saying, Hear, listen up. He does the same thing at the beginning of chapter 3. Again, we see it in verse 1. He says, and I said, hear you heads of Jacob. And then he says it again in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains of the hills. Hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. And so we have three sections in this book. And, and Micah tells us that they each begin when he, he pronounces to the people, hear, listen. It's like a, a teacher trying to get his, the student's attention in a class. Listen up, listen to what I'm about to say. Each of these hears uh, begin a new section in Micah's book. It's almost like we have three sermons together. That's why they sometimes seem to, to bounce around, because there's actually three separate sections in this book. But even within these sections, there's a very discernible pattern we can, we can begin to see it as we, as we look carefully because each section begins with bad news. Each section begins with a, a pronouncement of, of judgment against the people's sin. You, you heard it back in verse 2. We're, we're, told, beginning, we're told there, he says, Behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. 
and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Because of the transgressions of Jacob, because of the sins of the house of Israel, God is coming in judgment and the world is going to melt before him. That's the image with which the first section of Micah begins. And we see something similar in the second section, beginning in chapter 3. He says, Hear, you heads of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil? Then verse 4, he says, Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. These, because these people love the evil and hate the good, God's judgment is coming against them, and when it comes, he will not listen to their cries for mercy. You see it again in the last section, beginning in chapter 6. He says, Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and your enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. And so what we see is that each of these sections of the book of Micah, they begin with bad news because that's what the prophets were. In large measure, the Old Testament prophets were prosecuting attorneys. They were coming against the people of God with God's indictment. They were, they were coming against the people with, with God's charges. They were, they were coming to, to tell them that God had not been blind to their faithlessness. He had seen their violations of the covenant. He had seen the ways that they had turned from him and, and strayed from his past and violated his righteousness. They had, he had seen all of their wickedness. And now, God's judgment was coming because of those sins. That is the message of the prophets from beginning to end. They, again and again, they announce God's judgment against the people. But... Despite the coming judgment, despite the, the assurance that those sins are going to be dealt with, judgment never gets the last word in the prophets. Because in each of these sections, there is a glimmer of hope that comes at the end. Yes, God is bringing judgment on his people, but God's purposes will not be Thwarted. Yes, God's people have been unfaithful and they will suffer accordingly, but God's plans are not undone. His promises will be fulfilled. He will save for himself a remnant. And so there is hope for the people of God. We, we see this again at the end of each section. If you look at the very end of, of chapter 2, you, you hear it. He says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel, and I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. The Lord will come, and he will break through the wall of their imprisonment. He will lead them back to freedom. He will gather them together as his flock once again. And so the, the prophets announce judgment against the people, but they always leave them with a, a glimmer of hope, with the assurance that God is not yet done with them. Yes, judgment is coming, but judgment will not have the last word. And that's precisely what we see in this middle section. It's, it's part of that hope that this passage in uh, Micah chapter 5 
is, is for. It, it, is, it is part of proclaiming that hope. So I want us to hear it in context. So let's look at this middle section in a little more detail, beginning with the bad news in chapter 3. So in chapter 3, we have three oracles. Three oracles that, that are really four verses each. And, and they pronounce God's judgment against the leaders of Israel, against their prophets, their priests, and their kings. Actually beginning with their kings. Notice what he says. He says, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? Isn't that your job? That's, that's why you've been made kings. Isn't it for you to know justice? And yet, what does he say? You hate the good and love the evil. You tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones. You eat their flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. It's a, it's a picture of shepherds who, who do not protect and tend their sheep, but rather flay them and, and, and put them in the cauldron that they might devour them. It's a picture of wicked shepherds who serve only themselves and not their sheep. Then we get a similar picture in the next section, beginning at verse 5, because it's not only the, the rulers and the kings of Israel who are wicked, but it is their prophets also so in verse 5 we read, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who, who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Here we have the prophets, those who are supposed to speak the word of God to the people, and yet they don't. They, they rather tell the people what they want to hear as long as they're being fed, as long as they're being paid. They will tell the people whatever their itching ears want to hear. And so because of these wicked prophets, there's a famine of hearing the word amongst the people. Then in the final oracle, he actually throws the, the priests into the mix. We, we see this in verse 11. When he puts all three together, he says, Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. And yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. We serve the Lord, these false, wicked prophets and priests and kings say. And yet they don't. They claim to serve the Lord, and yet they serve only themselves. And because of their wickedness, because of their unrighteousness, verse 12, therefore, Micah says, because of you, you wicked rulers, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Judgment is coming because of these wicked rulers. Now that doesn't mean that the, the people are innocent victims of bad leadership. That's not at all what, what Micah means. It's not what any of the prophets mean when they denounce the, the leaders. Amos tells us that as, as go the leaders, so go the people. The, it, the problem is that the people have been led into sin by these wicked leaders. It's, it's not that they're innocent, but it's that they have suffered under their leadership. It's, it's something that we actually see repeated throughout the book of Kings. The, the whole book of Kings re, re, recites this phrase over and over again when it refers to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he caused the people to sin. Think about that phrase. Jeroboam, you remember his story. He was the one who rebelled against Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the, the rightful king. He wasn't a very good king. He wasn't a very wise king. 
But nevertheless, Jeroboam rebelled against him. He, he tore the ten tribes of uh, the ten northern tribes away from the two southern tribes. And then to make sure that that split stuck, to make sure that the, the ten tribes didn't go back, he set up a whole new way of worshiping in the north. He set up uh, these altars built like calves, golden calves, in, in Dan and in Bethel. And he encouraged the people to worship there. And he gave them their own priests. And he gave them their own false prophets. And he led them into rebellion and sin against the Lord. And, and all of the kings of the north followed in his footsteps. They, they did the same sins that, the son, that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, caused the people to sin. So we see that this leadership matters. Leadership leads the people into sin. It leads the people into uh, rebellion. It, it leads them into and under God's judgment been this way since the beginning, since our first parents rebelled against God, since our first parents denied that he was their rightful king. Humanity has suffered under wicked leaders. Wicked leaders have led the people into sin time and time and time again. And when you begin to, begin to understand that wicked leaders lead the people into sin, lead them into judgment, you begin to understand the longing of Advent. You begin to understand why the people longed for a better king, for a better prophet, for a better priest. You begin to understand why they longed for one who would come, who would lead them out of judgment back into God's blessing. One who would love righteousness. One who would do righteousness. One who would bring down upon them God's blessing rather than his curse. That's the longing. And it is that longing that Micah begins to stir up in chapter 4. Notice again, look at the connection between the very end of chapter 3, verse 12, and then the, the very first verse of, of chapter 4. At the end of verse uh, at the end of chapter 3, we are told that, that the mountain of the house, the, the mountain upon which the temple stood, the mountain of the house will become a wooded height. Now we have to understand that that's a judgment. In our day, we, we kind of think it's a good thing when, when land reverts back to its natural state. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. And, and it is good. We, we enjoy land that is, that is covered with vegetation and trees. That's not what Micah's talking about here. This is not a good thing that the, that the mountain of the house of the Lord has, has gone back to a wooded height. This is a judgment that announces that the, the temple is desolate. It's a heap of ruins that no one is there. No one is working. The trees have, have taken back over. It has been returned to the wilderness. That's the judgment that is coming against Israel. The temple, which was the house of the Lord in the midst of his people, it will be laid waste. And even the mountain will be taken back over by the trees. But that judgment will not have the last word. For notice what uh, the prophet says in verse 1. He says, It shall come to pass in later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. And that we may walk in his paths. 
And so judgment is coming against the house of the Lord. Judgment is coming against the mountain. God, judgment is coming against the people of God. But there is coming a day when that judgment will be reversed, when the house of the Lord will again be established on earth. When the mountain will again be exalted, and it will be exalted not only for the benefit of the Jews, but for all nations, as all nations will flow to it. All nations will come to learn the law, the law that the present leaders of Israel polluted and perverted. That law will become the the feast that people come to take part of at the temple. And when God's word goes forth from the temple even to the ends of the earth, the result will be peace. He shall judge between many peoples, and he shall decide disputes from strong nations far away. And because of his rule, notice what happens, verse 3. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. This is what God will do. He will again exalt his house. He will again exalt his temple. He will again exalt his mountain. The nations will flow to it and because they come under his word, all things will again be good. Peace will reign. Every man will sit under his fig tree and under his vine. He shall know no want. He shall know no fear. All people will flourish, even as God originally created them to do. This is the blessing that God has in store. This is the the, the vision that God intends to fulfill. This is the longing of Advent. It's what Sam was talking about with the kids. What is it that you hope for for Christmas this year? What is the the temporary toy that will bring you some measure of joy. It's not that those things are bad, but let us not miss the the reality that God has something far better for us and the gift of His Son. He intends to give us peace. He intends to give us righteousness. He intends to give us His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This is what God has in store for His people. But if His people have rebelled, if his people have strayed, who will this kingdom be for? It's the next thing that we see in chapter 4. Who is this kingdom of peace for? Well, notice what he says. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble who? I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off, They will be a strong nation. Who is the kingdom for? It is for the faithless people of God. Who is the kingdom for? It's for sinners. It's for those afflicted by God's judgments. It's for those who were cast off because of their unfaithfulness. How can this be? Because God is going to bring them back to himself. We we confessed it even in our confession of faith this morning that God is a king Jesus is a king who subdues us to himself. That's what God is going to do. He is going to subdue his people to himself. And we see it in verse 7. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time and forevermore. This is actually even clearer at the end of chapter 5. Look with me beginning at verse 10. 
He says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. It, it sounds like judgment. I'm going to cut off your horses. I'm going to destroy your, your chariots. It, it sounds like judgment. But this is supposed to be the, the hope portion. What's going on? Well, keep reading. He says, I will cut off your horses from among you. I will destroy your chariots. I will cut off your cities of your land. I will throw down your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand. And you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and the pillars from among you. And you shall not bow down to the work of your hands anymore. And I will root out the Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. What is God saying? He's saying, I am going to lay waste, but I'm going to lay waste to your idolatries. I'm going to lay waste to those false hopes. I'm going to bring you back to myself so that you trust in the Lord and so that you call upon my name for salvation. And when I cut off all of those things, I will have subdued you to myself and you will again be my people. He's going to cleanse them. He's going to grant to them repentance unto life. And because he brings them back to himself, he qualifies them for an inheritance in his coming kingdom. This is what God is going to do. And how is he going to do it? He's going to do it by providing the ruler that the people need. This is what the prophecy in chapter 5 is all about. Remember, the judgment began with the wicked leaders, the leaders that had led them in rebellion against God. But God says, I'm going to reverse that by providing you with the leaders that you need, with the prophet, priest, and king that you require. And so he says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth for me. For you shall come forth for me, a leader for me. One who will be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. It is this one, we're told, who will be a shepherd to the people. He will give the, the kingdom to, to repentant sinners who, who are shepherded by a good shepherd. This is who the kingdom is from. The, the, the king, the rightful king, the good shepherd who, who will allow his people to dwell secure in the land because he will be their peace. And notice who this good shepherd is. Notice who this good king is. Micah says that his coming is from old, from ancient of days. That can only describe the Lord coming himself. Only God comes from eternity. Only God comes from days of old. This is the one whom David, the Lord, called Lord. This is the coming of the King, Emmanuel, God with us. But if he's God come in the flesh, if he's coming from ancient of days, why is he born in Bethlehem? Bethlehem, too insignificant, too little to even be counted among the clans of Judah. Bethlehem, which was, which was considered just a suburb of the city by those who lived in the city. Why was he born in such an insignificant place? Well, the insignificance was actually the point. Because he comes in humility. You see, how is it that this king comes to save his people? He comes not to do it in the ways of the world, not in the ways that the world expects. 
But he comes to save his people by dying in their place. He comes to save his people by being crucified. He comes to, to save his people by being obedient even to the point of death on a cross. That's why he's born in Bethlehem. It's a, it's a mark of his humility. It's a, it's a mark of him coming to stand with the lowly, or better yet, to stand in their place. You see, as the prophet Isaiah said, our iniquities, our uh, transgressions, our sins are placed upon him, the Lamb of God, who dies in our place that we might live. He comes under judgment that we might be blessed. He drinks the cup of God's curse that we might receive all the blessings of the covenant. This is our humble king. Yes, God comes, but he comes to die in our place. He comes to identify with the lowly so that the lame might indeed inherit the kingdom of God. That is the good news of Christmas. That's the good news of a Savior born not in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem. It announces that the salvation that he brings is not for the worthy but for the lowly. It's for those who know they don't deserve it. It's for those who know that their judgment is righteous, that they are justly condemned. And if that is you this morning, if you come here this morning as one who knows yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving of His wrath and displeasure, then the good news of Christmas is that there is a Savior who has come and stood in your place before the judgment seat of God. A Savior born in Bethlehem who lived lowly under the law and gave his life as the sacrifice for your sins, that you might not have to suffer God's judgment, but that you might instead know his full blessing. And because we have such a Savior born in Bethlehem, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in your goodness. We rejoice in your grace. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see it. Father, give us eyes to see the Savior born in Bethlehem. Give us eyes to, to see and to recognize that he came in humility, that we who deserve to be humble might instead be exalted, that we who deserved curse might instead know blessing, that we who were under a sentence of death might instead know eternal life. Father God, let this gospel fill us with hope and let us live out of that hope to the praise of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.